In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Christmas is a time for friends and family. It's an opportunity to gather around a warm fireplace or a festive tree or a table full of delicious food and be with the people that you love. But what happens if you're too far away or if you're just too busy to sit down with everyone? Well, you send them a Christmas card. One of my favorite Christmas traditions is Christmas cards. In Christmas's past, whenever we received a card, Kathy would read it, and then she would place it over the slats in the living room blinds. As the season progressed, the slats would start to fill up with cards. And then a few days before Christmas, I would plop down in my recliner, and I would read all the cards in one sitting. I thoroughly enjoyed my Christmas ritual. Reading a Christmas card, especially one with a personalized note, is the next best thing to sitting with its sender and enjoying some Christmas cheer. And I'm not the only person who enjoys Christmas cards. You'd think in an age of email and texting and messaging, Christmas cards sent snail mail would be outdated. It would be on the decline. It would be a relic of the past. The U.S. Postal Service tells us that the overall quantity of physical mail has decreased in recent years by 43%. But bucking that trend are Christmas cards. Americans still send 1.6 billion cards each holiday season. Hallmark markets over 2,000 different Christmas card designs. Americans spend $2 billion a year on greeting cards at Christmas. For me, I look forward to Christmas cards almost as much as I do Christmas presents. A gift is usually an object, but a card conveys a message. A gift you plug in or you put on, but a card encourages and instructs and inspires. A Christmas card makes me think and ponder, reminds me of a facet of the holiday that I may have forgotten or neglected. In fact, you can make the case that cards are more heartfelt and spiritually oriented than gifts. And after saying that, my family, those that have probably already bought me a gift, have taken it back and they're going to swap it for cheaper cards. But I do like Christmas cards. And this year, I'm going to give each of you four Christmas cards. I would prefer to sit with you under your Christmas tree, at your home, sipping some eggnog, discussing what's on our hearts together. But unfortunately, there's not enough time or not enough me to go around. But here's what I can do. Each week from now until the end of the year, you'll get a different Christmas card when you walk into the church. It'll be a reminder of that week's sermon. Over the next four meetings, I'll be discussing the theme, what Christmas is all about. Today's message is Christmas is about connections. Next Sunday, we'll study Christmas is about family. On Christmas Eve, our subject will be Christmas is about worship. And the Sunday after Christmas, I'll speak to you on the subject of Christmas is about faith. 
Hopefully, you, hopefully you'll get some inspiration from these messages, and you can use your Christmas cards to jot down the thoughts that you think are worthy to remember. Then when you go home, here's what I hope you do. I hope you hang the card over the slats in your blinds, and then just before Christmas, pull them all out and read them in one sitting to prepare your heart for Christmas. Once more, here's the theme for our next four gatherings, what Christmas is all about. And today I want us to realize that Christmas is about connections. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 declare a monumental truth. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. God speaks. No wonder Christmas cards and the act of conveying a message are so synonymous with the spirit of Christmas. The God who authored the Christmas story is the God who speaks. Hebrews tells us at various times and in various ways, God has spoken. The God that we worship, the God who exists, is far from silent. Our Creator doesn't suffer from lockjaw. The Word of God has penetrated time and space and has declared His will to man. God hasn't left us in the dark. He hasn't sentenced us to figure out life on our own. God has spoken. Once agnostic philosopher Christopher Morley wrote, My theology, briefly, is that the universe was dictated but not signed. In other words, he believed that God existed but had remained incognito, that God had remained silent, that God had refused to play his cards. In essence, he was saying that God doesn't send Christmas cards. He prefers distance. He stays mum and mute. I've heard it said, the atheist refuses to believe God exists. The agnostic refuses to believe God speaks. But the Bible assures us God is, and he has spoken. The first verse of Hebrews in a Greek Bible uses the terms polymuros and polytropos. That God has spoken in many portions and through many methods. In the Hebrew Old Testament, written to God's people in the past, his revelation unfolded over the centuries and through various people. God spoke through many mouths and by many means. He spoke a bit by bit, piece by piece, a portion here, a portion there, here a word and there a word. Theologians call this progressive revelation. It was as if God was unrolling a scroll a little at a time. Each of the Hebrew prophets penned a successive line in God's unfolding drama. Isaiah spoke of the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah spoke of the judgment of the Lord. Ezekiel described the glory of the Lord. Daniel assures us of the sovereignty of the Lord. Hosea put on display the love of the Lord. Zechariah highlighted the faithfulness of the Lord. You see, various prophets gave us a portion, but no one prophet provided a full and comprehensive portrait of God's will for man. God spoke piecemeal. He revealed himself in many portions, but also in many ways. 
In fact, when you read the Hebrew prophets, you're struck by the fact of how versatile they were in their deliveries. Some of the prophets preached. Others acted out object lessons or did miracles or interpreted dreams. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah gave the people the naked truth, the bare facts? You remember what he did? He walked naked and barefoot for three years to warn the Egyptians that God would send foreign invaders to bring judgment upon them. God's prophet Hosea was called by God to marry a prostitute to illustrate how God felt about Israel's unfaithfulness. God sent the prophet Jeremiah to the river to bury a linen sash. But after enough time had elapsed for it to rot, Jeremiah went back and he dug it up and he used it as a visual to remind the Jews of their spiritual rottenness. Of all the Hebrew prophets, it was Ezekiel who was the most famous for acting out symbolic gestures. I like to call Ezekiel the stuntman of the Bible. Once Ezekiel laid on his side for a whole year. At another time, he put his face to a frying pan. He shaved his head with a sword. He cut his hair into three clumps. All these antics spoke specific messages that God wanted to communicate to his people. Ezekiel was even told to cook his food over cow chips. Cow chips, no less. And I'm sure when Ezekiel got to heaven, the first thing God said to him was, Well done, good and faithful servant. Been waiting all week to tell that one. But here's my point. In times past, God spoke in many portions and in many ways. And yet these Old Testament revelations had their limitations. Scattered messages can be hard to synchronize. Bits and pieces don't always fit together. After the last prophet had uttered his message, there were people who still didn't understand God's heart. When a prophet spoke of God's might, Israel often forgot of God's mercy. When a prophet emphasized God's love, Israel forgot about his wrath. When a prophet spoke of God's glory, Israel would fail to see his gentleness. When the prophets communicated to God's people, they heard the immediate message spoken, but they failed to put it all together. God's revelation was like a jigsaw puzzle. Pieces were scattered all over the tabletop, but there was no sense of the complete picture. The challenge for God was to find a way to connect all that he had spoken. God needed to encapsulate all that he had said into one message, to roll up the divine will into a single revelation. And God rose to the challenge in a brilliant way. Hebrews tells us that God, who spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The child that was born to Mary and laid in the manger was God's full and final word to man. Today, there's nothing more to be said. There's nothing that's been left unsaid. It's all been said in Jesus Christ. God expressed his genius in the miracle we call Christmas. For the best way to communicate a message is not to break it down and send it out in portions, but to send the messenger himself. Jesus Christ was the embodiment of all God's ways and will. 
Jesus' words were always integrated with his actions. You not only saw his deeds, you heard his words. And you not only heard his heart, you saw his deeds. Jesus delivered God's words and performed God's work. And there was never a confusing disparity between the two. He gave us a full revelation of God. This is what we're told in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. If you want to know what God is like and what God likes, just watch Jesus. Today, God declares His message and expresses His heart and conveys His words to us and reveals His will for us through His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Christmas card from God to mankind. And there's not a person in this room today who doesn't desire for God to speak to them. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. And yet perhaps you're looking for God to speak to us like he did to Moses in the burning bush, or like he did to Elijah in the cave, or like Ezra even preaching from the steps of the temple. We're looking for God to communicate in many portions and in many ways. But that's not how God speaks to his people in these last days. No, today, if you want to hear God speak loud and clear, then tune in to Jesus. God has spoken in these last days to us through his son. In Christ, all the truths of God connect and fit together. And this is why I say that Christmas is about connections. A convergence took place that first Christmas. Everything in the plan and will of God came together. Five connections occurred. A connection took place between past and present, between east and west, between young and old, between mundane and miracle, between heaven and earth. God's plan for all people in all ages came together that first Christmas. Christmas is about connections. It's the time of the year when we connect the dots. And with the time I have left this morning, I want to talk about how that happened at the birth of Christ. And then I want to apply these same connections to our lives today. First, Christmas is a connection between the past and the present. Just do a quick reading of the Christmas story of Matthew's gospel, and you'll immediately notice all the Old Testament references, references to the past. Chapter 1, verse 23, quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Notice chapter 2, verse 5, quotes Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. He would be born in that tiny town called Bethlehem. Both were facts foretold long before their actual occurrence. And a host of other prophecies were fulfilled in the events of Jesus' birth. Later, Matthew again quotes from Hosea and then quotes from Jeremiah. In fact, after reading the Gospels, you'd think the Old Testament was a fill-in-the-blank quiz and Jesus was the answer to all of the questions. 
Jesus was the final stanza in the song the prophets had been singing for centuries. The hope of the Old Testament saints was fulfilled in Jesus. And when the holy child was born, a long cold night had ended and the first rays of a new day had dawned. A grim past gave way to an exciting present and a still more hopeful future. Christmas connected the past to the present. This is what prompted a 6th century monk named Dionysius to split our calendar into A.D., Anno Domini, which is in Latin for the year of our Lord, and B.C., or before Christ. For Dionysus recognized that the first Christmas was the connection between what had been spoiled by man's sin and the beginnings of what God would redeem, a promised redemption. But Christmas is also a connection between East and West. About the same time that Jesus was born, a star appeared in the eastern skies over Babylon. And there, a few soothsayers and astrologers, they saw this astronomical marvel and they took notice. These wise men were eastern mystics. They were shamans. They They were Persian Dalai Lamas. And yet they had been influenced by men familiar with the Hebrew God. As far back as Moses, 1,445 years earlier, a Persian wise guy by the name of Balaam, you remember him? Balaam uttered a God-given prophecy. His words are recorded in Numbers 24, verse 17. Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam associated the appearance of a star with the coming of a scepter or a ruler out of Israel. A closer contemporary of these wise men, the wise men who visited that first Christmas, was a man named Daniel. Daniel had also influenced these dignitaries who visited Jesus. You remember in Daniel chapter 9, the Hebrew prophet predicted the very day the Jewish king would appear to the nation Israel. From Daniel's prophecy, the Magi could calculate Jesus' approximate time of arrival. It's interesting, both Daniel and Balaam primed the pump. They sensitized these eastern wizards to be looking westward for a sign that the Savior of the world had been born. And what a sight it was when they followed that star across the Fertile Crescent, when that caravan from the east rode into Jerusalem looking for the newborn king. These were Oriental officials riding into an Occidental or Western city. East is meeting West. Gentiles are visiting Jews. These wise men looked and dressed strangely. In fact, their mere appearance frightened the Jewish king Herod. And though the Jewish scholars in Jerusalem knew from the scriptures exactly where the promised king had been born, they refused to join the caravan. They were only a few miles from Messiah who'd been born to die and first for the Jews. And yet they and their brothers were too proud to come and worship. A reception for the newborn king was left up to Gentiles. You see, even as a baby, Jesus reached across a continent He connected lost people a world away to God's promises. 
As an infant, Jesus began his work of connecting the disconnected and of reuniting people. And speaking of bringing folks together, Christmas connects young people with old people as well. Recall Mary's encounter with Anna and Simeon in the temple. Mary was a teenager. Anna and Simeon were senior citizens. It was said of Anna, she was of a great age. We're told it had been 91 years since she had been married. According to Jewish law, the earliest a girl could marry was 13. That meant that Anna was at least 104 years old. The old gal had been on Social Security for over 40 years. And neither was Simeon a spring chicken. He too was a seasoned saint. You remember the Holy Spirit had assured him that he wouldn't kick the bucket until he had seen the Messiah. I picture Simeon, normal, his normally failing arms and quivering hands, suddenly growing strong one last time so that he could reach out to Mary and hold the baby Jesus. What a moment it was in the temple. These two old timers and a teenage mom are suddenly bonded over the baby in their arms. And the Christmas scene that always stuns me occurred when the wise men finally arrive in Bethlehem. You know, by this time, the child is not a baby. He's now a toddler, as much as two years old. Imagine these distinguished oriental dignitaries, these adult men, polished gentlemen, bowing before a rambunctious toddler. Can you imagine somebody bowing before your two-year-old? Age yielded to origin. Certainly, Christmas connects young and old. And Christmas also connects the mundane with the miraculous. Picture the nativity scene, the holy moment. The miracle of all miracles has taken place. Try to imagine what it all meant. God took on fragile flesh. The divine came into the world with a spleen and a liver and two kidneys. The Almighty had adenoids. Can you imagine? And when he appeared, Joseph laid him in a manger. Martin Luther remarked of his birth, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. Yet as miraculous as this all was, its surroundings were every bit as monotonous and messy. Remember, it all happened in a stable, not in a maternity ward. Cows were mooing and sheep were bleeding and dogs were barking and chickens were clucking. It was a place as earthy as earth can get. And recall what brought the couple to Bethlehem in the first place. You remember the location of the childbirth had been foretold by Micah the prophet 700 years earlier. And yet I doubt seriously if that biblical detail ever crossed Joseph's mind as he loaded up a pregnant Mary on the back of a burrow for a three-day donkey ride. As they walked down those dusty dirt roads through the Jordan Valley, I'm sure Joseph cursed the blasted tyrant under his breath. Who in the world ordered this senseless census? I can hear him muttering, isn't it enough that Augustus rules the world? Why does that power-hungry emperor have to brag about the number of his subjects? 
And yet God was using something as typically earthly as a Caesar's inflated ego, as a politician's inflated ego to fulfill his divine and eternal will. How's that for merging the mundane with the miraculous? Again, Christmas is a time to plot the dots. Christmas connects the run of the mill with the will of God. And most importantly, Christmas connects heaven with earth. You remember the star the wise men followed to the house in Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary were rearing Jesus. It's possible this star was a celestial phenomenon, maybe an alignment of the planets, or it could have been a physical manifestation of God's glory, the Shekinah that they followed across the plain. But whatever it was, I know it was a big deal. It reminds me of a, the hubbub a few years back over the near flyby of Halley's Comet. One curious stargazer, she traveled to the Inca ruins of Peru in order to get the best view of this comet. After the comet had passed, this particular lady, she was quoted as saying, That's it? That's all there is? I came 4,000 miles to see this crummy little fuzzball? She was obviously disappointed. But trust me, no one reacted that way. At the star, the wise men saw it was a very big deal. The star that God put in the sky was a signal to those who noticed that heaven had come to earth, that the eternal had mingled with time, that God was now dabbling in the affairs of man, that a divine visitation had happened. Think, too, of what occurred in the shepherd's fields. Dirty, grimy shepherds are trying to keep warm by a fire. They smell like sheep and soot. They're telling jokes and killing time. Another night on a boring job. When suddenly the skies peel apart. A warp in the space-time continuum occurs over the fields outside Bethlehem. A curtain rises between time and eternity. Shepherds used to seeing sheep in the moonlight are now blinking their eyes in the blinding light of God's glory. And a host of angels, Luke calculates a multitude, suddenly appear over the shepherds saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. How odd this is. The hallowed angels meet hairy shepherds. Messengers of the Almighty share the same space as moisture droplets and flying bugs. A collision of the physical and spiritual occurs. The eternal and the seasonal collide over the shepherd's fields. Heaven is working on earth. God is coming to man. And this is why I say Christmas is about connections. On that first Christmas, God connected the dots. An intriguing convergence took place between past and present, between east and west, between young and old, between mundane and miracle, between heaven and earth. And here's our application. For 2,000 years later, God makes sure that Christmas is still about connections. Every Christmas, 
draws a line connecting past and present and east and west and young and old and mundane and miracle and heaven and earth. Christmas is still the time of the year when God connects the dots of our life. Think of it. Christmas still connects past and present. For unlike all the other holidays, Christmas time stirs up memories from my past Christmases. And I'm sure, just having lost my dad, I'll do even more reminiscing this Christmas. I'm sure of it. Christmas just seems to be a time of recollection. Every Christmas, I always recall the year my little brother got sick at Christmas. And every time I turned on my battery-operated Godzilla, he would scream with fright and he'd run to my mom. I tortured him all Christmas morning. It's a wonder the guy even speaks to me today. And it seems like just yesterday, I was standing in my neighbor's yard in front of his outdoor nativity. I was holding my daughter, Natalie. She was maybe five or six at the time. And we were admiring the baby Jesus in the manger. And we were talking together of how much we both loved him. I'll never forget that night. Christmas stirs up memories. Some pleasant, ah, some painful. But you see, the holiday connects the present with the past. We recall people we miss. At Christmas, we take inventory of how far God has brought us. And we count the blessings we've been given to enjoy. Christmas also still connects east and west, or for us, even north and south. For if Christmas is truly understood, it brings people together. You see, when God entered this divided world, he did so as a baby. For a baby disarms pride and prejudice and racial bigotry. Who can deny a baby love and attention? Who cares if that baby's a yellow baby or a black baby or a white baby or a red baby? A baby is a picture of innocence and purity. A baby defies stereotypes and characterizations. Babies aren't associated with a class or a cause. A baby is just first and foremost human. Who doesn't love a baby? And a baby can wiggle its way into a calloused heart as nothing else can. Recently, I spoke with an interracial couple who were initially rejected by the wife's mother. Whenever they were together, mom's disapproval was palpable. That is, until the baby came along. And it was that baby that melted the mother's heart. She so loved that baby, how could she reject his mom and dad? You know, if you saw an African or a Caucasian or an Asian adult on the street, and in need, you may or may not pass by them. But if you saw an unattended baby in a basket beside the road, it wouldn't matter the color of that baby's skin. Everybody in this room would stop to help that baby. And you see, Christmas still prompts this type of connection. For Christmas draws us all to the baby in the manger. For in coming as a baby, God slipped past our prejudices. He humbled himself to appeal to everyone, everywhere. And when you embrace Jesus as your Lord, you lock hearts with everyone else who worships him as well. And Christmas still connects young and old. 
For it doesn't matter how old I get, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning are still magical times for me. Remember how a teenage Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart? And how the old geezer Simeon uttered his praise? Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And then the elderly Anna who gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Hey, young and old alike were caught up in the wonders of that first Christmas. Christmas is a holiday that is equally enjoyed by every age. My wife gets just as excited about decorating our Christmas tree as does our grandkids. I get the same thrill these days from giving gifts as I used to get from receiving them. Christmas is better than a drink from the fountain of youth. Everybody gets younger at Christmas time. And Christmas still connects the mundane with the miraculous. Don't miss the subtle miracles at Christmas time. Have you ever noticed how even the hardest, most bitter hearts tend to soften up at this special time of year? Folks usually close to the gospel are more likely to consider Jesus at Christmas time. And hey, God might want to arrange an opportunity or two for you to reach out to a suddenly, even surprisingly receptive person at Christmas. In fact, all year long, but especially at Christmas, we should be on the lookout for God to arrange for us divine appointments. God can bring a person in need across our path or an old friend might contact you, or you could receive an unexpected text. It was no accident that the Caesar issued his census when he did, that God used a pompous dictator to move Joseph and Mary from their hometown to Messiah's predicted birthplace. And God has ways to engineer your life into positions where he can use you or bless you this Christmas. And lastly, But again, most importantly, Christmas still connects heaven and earth. God still puts stars in the night sky to guide hearts to seek to worship his son. Christmas is all about heaven breaking through to earth. God intervening in human affairs. See, Christmas proved that God doesn't just sit in the heavens with his arms folded, expecting us to work it out on our own. No, God jumps, he dives into our muck and mire. And he comes to us suddenly and humbly and unpretentiously as a baby. The wise men were looking for God to provide a sign. Anna and Simeon patiently waited for God to fulfill a promise. Mary and Joseph had courageously obeyed and were now trusting God with their welfare. What are you looking for God to do in your life today? Whatever that might be, Christmas heightens our expectations. It reminds us that Jesus invades stables and offices and homes with his miracles. And he still does. He still wants to birth new life in a world that's haunted by death. Jesus loves to light up our nights with his glory and fill the atmosphere of our lives with the sweet aroma of his grace. See, here's my suggestion for you and me this Christmas. Look for the connections that God wants to make in your life. God loves to connect the dots. On their own, the bits and pieces of our life can seem random. 
But Jesus makes sense of our lives. We look back on our circumstances and we wonder why. But when we bow to worship Jesus and when he invades our hearts, Jesus connects us to God and he even connects us to one another. Christmas connects the present with the past. It recalls past promises and restores hope. Christmas connects us to people different than ourselves. It's a celebration of the whole of God's family. Christmas causes us to grow younger and renew a childlike faith. Christmas is a time to look for miracles, even in the midst of the mundane. And Christmas teaches us that God has spoken through His Son, that heaven continues to invade earth through the Spirit of our Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the most well-connected person I know. For Christmas is about connections. And here's my final thought. How about you? Are you connected to Jesus? Father, we pray for one another this morning.